Welcome to Mornings with Sue and Andy. It's the podcast for Friday, March 19th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahid Nenshi. We get the mayor's thoughts on the guidebook for great communities, which goes to council on Monday with public hearings, and his thoughts on the potential for easing of restrictions by the province next week. Next, we head stateside to catch up with Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington reporter, with details on Thursday's announcement that Canada will be receiving 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine from the U.S. Can our consumer habits be creating unnecessary and harmful waste? We speak with a researcher from the University of Alberta who says holding on to everyday items we no longer use can actually be more harmful in the long run than throwing them out. And finally, it's World Sleep Day. Have you heard of sleep hygiene? We get the lowdown on what it means and get some tips on how to build a sleep routine. 8-11 on Mornings with Sue and Andy, the Friday edition. And each and every Friday, we have the opportunity to catch up with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. All things Calgary with a real focus on your neighborhood. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Oh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, you guys, and happy birthday, Andy. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that somebody's wished me happy birthday because I love to make a big deal about it. I heard nobody has wished you a happy birthday. I can't get enough. So, yeah, (laughs) later we'll have cake in the big set. No, we won't. Um, But I I, want to talk about uh, celebrating our own personal neighborhoods. And something that's going to be, you know, in front of council on Monday is the guidebook for great communities. And that's a a phrase we've heard quite a bit and we discussed earlier this week on the program. So I'm wondering... From your perspective, if there's one thing Calgarians should know about it, what would you say? Okay, deep breath. Um, (laughs) This particular issue, um, much to my surprise, and I don't really know why, has gained a life of its own with just a a whole bunch of misinformation and and this kind of anonymous group spending a bunch of money on it, um, which actually doesn't make any sense to me. So I'll back up. Neighborhoods go through cycles, and most neighborhoods in Calgary, kind of in the inner part of the city, neighborhoods built anywhere between 1900 and, say, 1970, have lost population over time, which is just natural because kids grow up, they leave home. So the neighborhoods are smaller now than they were when they were built in terms of people. And when that happens, one of two things can happen. Either um, you kind of stagnate, There are fewer kids, you close the schools, you take facilities out and move them into other neighborhoods, and the neighborhood is not what it used to be. Or the neighborhood gentrifies. Uh, People move in in a huge rush. Nobody can afford to live there anymore, and a lot of the seniors who are living there have to move because they can't afford the taxes on their massively increased value of their homes. And so neither of those are great outcomes. And so most neighborhoods in the city have been asking the city to say, Let's have a plan for the future of our neighborhood and how it's going to change and develop over time. However, those plans tended to be hard to do. They were hundreds of pages long. You started from scratch every single time. So the idea was that we spent the last several years working with these neighborhoods to talk about what I call a recipe book, which is the guidebook for great communities. And it's a compendium of kind of best practices of how neighborhoods can redevelop how you can support local businesses in them and so on, both drawn from successful examples in Calgary as well as from examples from across North America and around the world. But it really is just that. It's a guidebook. It doesn't change the zoning on a single piece of land in Calgary, but it actually provides some direction for when neighborhoods are ready for their new plan. So then when we come to the new plan, it becomes cheaper and easier and much shorter because it'll just say, you know, along this street in the neighborhood, policies 4, 7, and 15 of the guidebook will apply instead of recreating them 
every single time. So to summarize, it's a recipe book. And it has a recipe for a whole bunch of different types of cake in it. And when a neighborhood is ready to create its own plan with the people that live there, they can look to the recipe book and say, we're ready to bake a cake, but this tells us whether we want a chocolate or a vanilla or a red velvet cake or Andy's birthday cake. And that's really the idea. It's to streamline things going forward. A lot of folks are saying it's going to change our neighborhood forever. It's going to put six-story buildings or fourplexes where there used to be a single-family home. Well, here's the thing. That can happen today. (laughs) Every second Monday, council makes decisions like that in the absence of a recipe book. And this just will help guide where those things are appropriate and where they are not, where single-family homes should be protected, but where uh, uh, parts of the city where you might want to see townhouses or you might want to see a little more density. So... If I don't like a six-layer or six-level cake in my hood, there's still an opportunity for people to say, no, we don't want this to go ahead. This doesn't mean that, that you know these big buildings are going to be built all over the place. It still gives Calgarians the opportunity to have their say and say, this is not something we want. Yeah, 100%. It doesn't actually rezone any piece of land. So the, it would still have to go through the regular process if it's a one-off. But if the people in the neighborhood say, let's create a new plan, and lots of neighborhoods across the city have done so, and in fact, we one of the interesting things about this is we actually did a series of neighborhoods using the new policy while we were developing the policy to see how it works. Um, the North Hill neighborhoods, which is sort of everything on the escarpment uh, north of the river. And so, and that's worked out really nicely, actually, because it's helped the people who live in the neighborhood to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. And so ultimately, that's the goal overall, but it doesn't change a thing. We'll still have those meetings every second Monday and discuss individual applications. All right. Well, thanks for your clarification. Uh, mm-hmm. We're wondering, we got to take a quick break. Can we hold you over for two more minutes? Yes, of course. Good stuff. More with Mayor Nahid Nenshi coming up in two. Teen on Mornings with Sue and Andy and more with Mayor Nahid Nenshi. Hello again, Mayor. Hello. I want to, uh, you know, uh, look ahead to Monday because Monday is one of those days, March 22nd, that we could hear about an easing of restrictions. But I want to give you some of the words from Dr. Dina Hinshaw yesterday where she said this is a critical time in the battle against the coronavirus and saying, quote, simply put, cases are rising sharply and we must curb the current rate of infection. If that doesn't say to anybody that uh, we're not going to be moving the needle on Monday, I don't know what does. But what are your thoughts? Well, she was pretty sharp yesterday, uh, sharper than I've heard her in a while. And the numbers do bear it out. Uh, You know, for a long time, even though we had new infections every day, the number of active cases was falling, the number of people actually sick. So more people were, were recovering than were getting infected. And then that leveled off a couple of weeks ago, and now we've seen increases again. So we now have over 5,000 active cases in Calgary for the first time in a long time, in, in Alberta for the first time in a long time. And this is really a cause for concern. As I've been mentioning for a while, we're in a bit of a race. Can we get enough people vaccinated prior to those variants really taking hold? And certainly uh, we've seen uh, in Ontario, the third wave has begun, according to a lot of people. And if you look very closely at the numbers in Calgary, the trends are extremely worrying. Um, We've not only plateaued, we've started to increase again. And we got a plateau again, or we will be in the midst of a third wave. And remember, the second wave was much larger than the first. And even though we're vaccinating people, the third could be much larger than the second until we get everyone that protection. So your thoughts, Mayor, do you think we're ready? Or do you think that it's, you know, we need to be a little more cautious here and maybe not jump into this next step? 
Yeah, we've got to be a little bit cautious, and I know it's hard, but it's about patience and it's about discipline. We're almost there. So let's not screw it up now. <laughs> let's keep saving lives uh, and make sure that <clears throat> as we get into the summer, we're finishing strong. So, you know, I know it's tough, but let's just continue to be patient and give it just a little while longer. All right, let's, uh, let's switch gears a bit and look into the summer months in bike share. Something switch gears, I see what you, you did like there. You like that, eh? I'm, uh-huh. well, I'm, I'm not sure if you're the spokesperson. Uh, uh, but we could see a larger rollout, <laughs> I can't stop, of, uh, of, of bike share. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this program and uh, what needs to be tweaked? Are there any issues? Yeah, one of the things that we learned uh, last year is people really need to be outside and the adaptive roadways that we've created and the lanes for bikes and and walkers have been extremely well used Uh, and people love their scooters. Uh, However, we lost last year because the scooters were so popular is we didn't have bike share um, because the bike share company switched to scooters. And so we'd like to see a little more bikes. It's healthier um, and it gives people more choice. And so the idea is there's some policies that we're suggesting now where if you will also introduce e-bikes, then we might let you have a few more scooters on the road. And the companies that some of the companies that offer the scooter service are very interested in that. So we should see a return to that. But I mean, man, people love those scooters and that bike share. So let's make it easier for folks. Agree. The scooters are fun and e-bikes would be a great addition. Love it. Thanks so much for the update. Appreciate your time. Enjoy the beautiful weekend that's in store for us. Thanks very much, everyone. Stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. We didn't get to chat about our new mental health strategy, but maybe we can talk about that next week. Absolutely. We will put it down. That will be our first topic we get into next Friday when we join you. Thanks, Mayor. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. That is Mayor Nahednenshi. 709, it's Mornings with Sue and Andy. Yesterday, we heard the U.S. will send one and a half million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to our nation. With the latest and all things coming out of the U.S., we're joined by Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington reporter. Good morning to you, Jennifer. Good morning and happy birthday. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, let's make a big deal about that. If, he loves it, Jennifer. Thank you for bringing that up. Showered on. Um, let's, uh, let's focus uh, on, the, on the business at hand here. And, uh, you know, uh, we are celebrating the news yesterday that President Joe Biden is going to be sharing the wealth when it comes to vaccines. So can you break this down for us? We're hearing there's a total of four million doses uh, being doled out of the AstraZeneca vaccine, both to our nation and to Mexico, in kind of a loan deal. What do you know about it? Well, that's right. 1.5 million doses are going to be going to Canada and 2.5 million are going to Mexico. AstraZeneca has about 7 million doses ready to go in America. They think they'll have up to 30 million by the end of April. Um, but this is a vaccine that is not approved or hasn't gotten emergency use authorization by the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. So these are vaccines that are just sitting there unused and there is no Uh, There's nothing on the docket right now, nothing on the calendar for the FDA to take up AstraZeneca's vaccine. And at this point, the United States has enough doses between Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and Moderna. So uh, as you mentioned, 1.5 million of these doses are going to Canada and 2.5 to Mexico. Well, thank goodness they're not just going to go to waste sitting there not being used. Why the terminology, though, of loaning them? Do you know? Well, I, I think... 
you know, I really don't know why, why that term. All I, all I know is that Jen Psaki, who's the White House spokeswoman, said yesterday, this is the plan and the deal hasn't been completely sealed yet. But this is, you know, this is what we intend to do. I don't really understand the loan terminology. How do you give because, that back? <laughs> yeah, you can't really give it back. Yeah. It's sort of like eating, Mc, eating McDonald's meal and then coming back and saying <laughs> it tastes great. So <laughs> I want my money back. So I don't really understand that terminology, but it's certainly not alone. You know, they're coming to Canada, they're going to Mexico, and yeah. they're not coming back. Well, good news overall, really, <laughs> yeah. in the end. If I get one, I'm not giving it back. No, for sure. definitely uh, <laughs> Let's, uh, on the vaccine front, let's talk about the schedule. And uh, President Joe Biden had an ambitious schedule of 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Uh, you know, how does he sit? I understand he's, he's ahead of schedule. Where, where are you at right now down south? Well, the White House claimed yesterday that they're going to hit the 100 million shot today, actually. So, um, you know, the, the CDC tracker that we have and what the White House are saying is saying there are there are a few million uh, different, but um, they're very close to 100 million shots. I and mean, things have definitely ramped up in the past three weeks. They're doing about 2.2 to 2.5 million shots a day in the U.S. And so, you know, things have definitely sped up. I, I live in Maryland. It's about in the middle of the country in terms of how many people have been vaccine, vaccinated, about 30, 30th place, if you will. Yeah. But certainly I know, uh, I would say the majority of the people I know have gotten at least one of their shots. My husband got the Johnson & Johnson. He works for the Department of Defense. So he got his shot and he's done. Um, so a lot, I've gotten my first shot of Pfizer, uh, as has my son. So most people I know have gotten at least one shot where, where I live, and, and that's pretty true across the country. Lucky you, for sure. Uh, let's talk right. about what also has arisen is the number of deaths back up to like around 1,000 per day. What's that being attributed to? Well, overnight, we just got slightly under 1,000, um, but... You know, that that is considered a decent number in America, given that a month, month and a half ago, we were at around 3,000 to 4,000 deaths a day. There is, There are reports, there are an uptick of cases in certain states, including Maryland, mm. that have reopened. Um, so that, of course, if there's an uptick in cases, there's going to be an uptick in deaths. Sure. But, you know, when it's it's a little unnerving i have to say when you start seeing people walking into restaurants and taking off masks um you know i i equated i, I said to my husband that this it feels almost like when when we report in washington after 9 11 you started seeing planes fly by the capitol because they were banned for so long then all of a sudden you saw them and you kind of you know cringe yeah it's weird isn't but it? yeah. it's a weird feeling seeing all these restaurants start to reopen and people not wearing masks and that's what we are seeing and the you know the dr fauci the cdc has warned there will be an uptick of cases because you know, these variants are still here and they're not not exactly sure how effective the vaccines are against the variants. And so, you know, that we're, we will see an uptick of cases and we will see an uptick in deaths before this is all under control, I believe. Jennifer, it was uh, been much talked about over the past few weeks, and that was, you know, former President Donald Trump not you know, standing his ground in, in telling his supporters to get vaccinated. He had a change of tune. Can you tell us about, you know, the circumstances surrounding it and exactly what he said? 
Well, this is, you know, the great lesson in irony. So President Trump ha was vaccinated in January, as was the former first lady, but didn't make that public. Mm -hmm. He has been asked by Dr. Fauci and others with the CDC to encourage his followers to get vaccinated because a majority of Republican men in particular are saying they won't get vaccinated. Now, he's since changed his tune, is now encouraging people to get vaccinated. You know, this just happened, you know, in the past, whatever, 24, 48 hours. And so hopefully that his followers will listen to him. But he's been saying so long that this is nothing worse than the flu, you know, that had he come out and said, I got the vaccine when he did, it would have helped. But, you know, he just was not forthcoming about that. Tough to change your tune after all that long, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, this may be a bit off topic in terms of, uh, you know, the, the COVID thing, but aside from that, also a big thing that's going on in the U.S. is, is they, they continue to try and pick that jury for the George Floyd death. And, and how is that situation shaping up now? Slow. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there's nobody probably, I would say the majority of the world that didn't see at least some part of that tape and doesn't know the story. Mm -hmm. So to try to pick an impartial jury is very, very difficult. And, and you know, it's not it's not unusual for jury selection to take a very long time. Uh, it just in you know it can typically take just in you know say in my county if there was a notorious murder um you know it would probably take about two weeks to select a jury because it's a it's a very very long process a, a juror can can be in the booth if you will for you know an hour or two uh being questioned by both you know the defense and the prosecution but this it's going to be it's going to be very very slow and i expect it'll be a pretty long trial yeah, let's stretch it out. I guess we're yeah. going to be hearing about that for, for quite some time. Thank you so much for your time the, this uh, morning, Jennifer, and ha happy weekend to you. Thank you, and happy birthday again. I had to get it in again. <laughs> Good work, Jennifer. Your check's in the mail. Good work. <laughs> Thanks. That is uh, Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington reporter. 609 on Mornings with Sue and Andy. We sometimes think that storing things for a rainy day or until we need them is practical, but University of Alberta researcher Saurabh Rorwell thinks differently. He's with us now to describe this concept. Very interesting, I think, anyway. Good morning to you, Saurabh. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Thank you for taking the time with us. And, and I, I want to make a distinction here because, uh, for example, if I have a toaster that works, but I got a new one, and I don't quite like the looks of the old one, but I'll, I'll keep it in case the new one breaks. I might put it in the garage or the basement. Uh, you have a, a real distinct difference to, to share with us between putting it in the garage and throwing it out. And it's not that far apart, is it? No, absolutely not. Um, in fact, uh, when we think about waste, uh, the quintessential image that comes up in front of us is the, you know, the garbage can, the trash can. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that is just an indicator of a much bigger problem. That is just one symptom of waste and not waste per se. And there are other sources of waste, uh, including the example that you gave, you know, the toaster that you have replaced, you've kept it in the garage, you haven't used it for more than a year. And however, you still continue to own it. And clearly, if you haven't used it for more than a year, toaster not is, is not even a seasonal item. But if you still continue to own it without using it, uh, you are being wasteful. Uh, and this uh, abandoning of products in our storage room is a significant source of waste in society. So, Saurabh, I mean, you know, as a marketing researcher, what is it with us? Is it just, do we have trouble letting go of things? Is it attachment issues? What, what do you see here as our problem? 
Uh, well, there are two foundational problems. Uh, one that you clearly identified, that is uh, we get attached to things. We give things, uh, you know, special meanings, and then we stop thinking of them as, uh, you know, products that mm-hmm. can be used and put to use. Uh, so we don't, we, we stop using them. And, and this is, uh, you know, you can think of these as special possessions, the first bicycle or, uh, you know, a special gift that you got from someone. And the second reason is, this uh, a weird habit that we have is that we I might just use this thing in the future. You know, unfortunately, a lot of times that never happens. But we have this tendency to be optimistic and to think that uh, I would use this product in the future and then, uh, you know, and hold on to it. And eventually that product either goes out of fashion or it stops working or, you know, no one even wants it anymore now. So what you eventually end up doing still is putting it in the trash can. So that is still wasteful. Okay, well, let's talk about the alternative. So if I, for example, let's go back to the toaster. If I say, okay, I'm, I haven't used this um, and, and I can get it back into use, whether or not I'm donating it or, or somebody picks it up at the garage sale or, or, or something of that nature, uh, the lifespan of that uh, will create, uh, I guess, maybe not having another consumer out there. Is, is that one of the bonuses? Absolutely. So, uh, and, and, and this is the essence of why stashing is considered wasteful, is that when we continue to own these products and, and not use them, there are other consumers out there who actually need these products and they go out and buy new products. Uh, these new products use up additional resources from the environment. So if, if you uh, stop thinking from the individual level, but if you think from the societal level, we have acquired more than what we use. So that creates an inefficient marketplace. And, and what we should be doing to reduce that waste is to, you know, uh, either share it, uh, loan it, donate it or sell it or just just put that product to use, put the product's utility to use. You know, Sarb, a couple of things come to mind as you're talking. For sure, I remember where I got so many of the things that I own because I attached them to the person who gave them to me. And that's kind of an odd thing to do, isn't it? But I also wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, in terms of wastefulness, say on Facebook, for example, we have a great page here in the Calgary area that is a free page. So if you've got something like you insist you need a new toaster, but you don't want to throw the other one out, you can give it away to somebody else for free who probably can't afford maybe their own toaster, you know, some situation like that. So maybe we're, we're trying to find ways around it, but, you know, I know there's still a lot of people hanging on to useless things in their home. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I think there is greater awareness now. People have started uh, thinking about waste uh, beyond uh, the trash can, mm-hmm. and, and, and they really want... Uh, you know, either to put the product to use or at least help someone else with that product. So, so, so there is uh, great strides uh, that we are taking in that area right now. It sounds like, Saurabh, that you have uh, some kind of a plan, if not even a, a, a loose formula, for knowing that it's, it's time to say goodbye to these items that we've hoarded in the attics, in the basements, and garages. Uh, the one-year mark is something you mentioned. Um, is, is that standard with every item or are different items, they have a different timeline to, to stash, if you will? Uh, one year is uh, something that I think we can reasonably use uh, as a standard reference for most of the items that we own. However, it is possible that there are certain seasonal items, right? So there are, you know, jackets and, and, and coats and winter boots and stuff like that. I think one year might not be sufficient for them. In, in that case, you know, uh, it could be uh, maybe two years. But I think uh, 
that should be left up to the individual for some people who keep on who freak who supposed to frequently use a product and if they don't use it even for 6 months it is very clear that they don't need it that decision uh, i think is left up to the individual owners but they have to be very mindful that's the point so this whole stash mentality that you're mentioning that I'm very much part of it it sounds like Sue's on board as well uh, with with the same kind of a, a rhythm in the household mm-hmm. is is this uh, specific to North America or is this something that happens across the globe Oh absolutely I think it happens uh, across the globe uh, in fact I was uh, doing some research that uh, you know in collectivistic societies uh, this is more common uh uh however i think for us uh, in north america this is uh, very important to think about because we tend to own a massive number of items so there was a recent uh, documentary on minimalism uh, that said that every household in in for example they, they talk about with reference to us uh, owns close to 300000 items that's a massive massive wow. number and and even if we don't own 300000 items let me say that they probably exaggerated the number even if it is 50000 items that's a massive number and i'm pretty sure we don't end up using 50000 items every month I would, or every i would yeah, think yeah. not that wow that's a huge number unbelievable yeah, so, so i i think yeah absolutely and and i think uh, uh, we live in a very materialistic uh, economy uh, and and we place a lot of value on materialism on ma- uh, material goods and i think uh, it is more important for us in north america in that sense great things to think about thank you so much for your time this morning uh thank you thank you both thanks for inviting appreciate that's uh, sarab rawal who is a marketing researcher at the university of alberta school of business see and what i haven't stashed away is spare time so that's <laughs> that's my excuse yeah. i know it sounds like an excuse but in my garage wow i've rubber made bins i have shelves is it a value uh not not really but to me it's the back of my mind might use or it's a good backup to have it's the old one whatever it might be I've I've got some work to do for time sure. Time to time to pass it along to somebody else, Andy. Incredible! I love the concept, and I think you'd feel liberated. If it, that was abs- the case. You know what? I most liberated feeling. I cleaned out my filing cabinet, papers, <laughs> paperwork that I've had forever from different jobs from a hundred years ago, stuff that you don't need anymore. That warranty booklets lib- for things and, you haven't had, and for some years. things that you maybe don't want to keep but you need to burn. Lighting them on fire, woo, feels good. See so your weekend's planned. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> 6:19 and today is World Sleep Day. So, we've got for you a quick course on sleep hygiene 101, some tips, some tricks to help you sleep healthier. Joining us this morning is Dr. Patrick Porter, who is a neuroscience expert and founder of Brain Tap. Good morning, Dr. Porter. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so what exactly do you mean first of all by sleep hygiene? What does that mean? Well, we mean getting ready or prepared for sleep. So many people have the bad habit of just turning off their TV or whatever they're doing and then think they can close their eyes and go right to sleep. And that doesn't work for most people. So, if I've never had a, a routine, you know, some people like I, I use my wife as an example as an incredible sleep routine. Uh, other people might not. Where do we start? How do we know what will move us in the right direction? Well, a couple of things that are key is number 1, no alcohol at least an hour before bed, um preferably 2 to 3. Uh no food 2 to 4 hours before bed and start turning off lights uh at least 2 hours before bed so your brain gets the gets the clue, hey, it's time to go to sleep. Those are three things you need to do well in advance 
of going to sleep. Are there meditation practices or, you know, that sort of thing that you recommend? And, and do, does it really work? Yeah. Yes. In fact, we just finished a study in uh, actually in Australia with third shift workers to show that sleep you can sleep on any schedule as long as you prepare yourself. And that study is going to be coming out. We had phenomenal results. The one thing that people can do, I think, to really... Uh, accelerate their sleep is to try not to go to sleep right away when they hit the pillow. Uh, that's one of the worst things you can do, actually. What you should do is do some breathing exercises, some mindfulness. Of course, we, we have an app that guides you through it, but what you do if you want to do this on your own is you breathe into the mental count of four, and you breathe out to the mental count of eight, and this is going to teach your nervous system to go from that fight or flight to the rest and relax and flip the switch for you so your body gets into that nice rhythm, the cadence that puts you into that deep sleep cycle. I want to talk, it seems like there's an app for everything these days, uh, uh, an app to help promote sleep and, and mm-hmm. quality sleep. Uh, it can't be a one-size-fits-all, so are, are there customizable uh, parts to this? Because we all have different habits. Well, the, the reality is that we all actually have the same cycles. I'll give you an example, 2 o'clock every afternoon, everyone's temperature around the world, 2 o'clock in their time zone, their body drops in temperature. It's around that time, and most people think that's tea time or coffee time, but it's really your body cycling. If you don't go to sleep before 8 in, at night and be deep in sleep before 2, you're not going to make as much melatonin. So everyone does have the same sleep cycle. So what we do, we know is that we need to condition the brain waves to get you out of this reactionary brain state, which is a very fast brain wave, into a deep sleep brain wave, which is the delta brain wave that we need to detox and clean our brains every night. That's fascinating. Okay, so that 2 p.m. mark that you refer to, is that where, and is that where our bodies are naturally saying, hey, you should have a nap here? Or what exactly is that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we remind people that these bodies were actually evolved out of the Serengeti where we'd all be relaxing like the rest of the animals, you know, taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon when it's hot and warm and not much going on. And, of course, we push through that. We'd, we'd get our caffeine or our sweets or whatever and push through that. But the best way is to do it through by doing some form. We, we showed with, within our app that uh, you can reclaim 80% of the energy if you take a 20-minute reboot or cat nap in the middle of the afternoon. I guess the, key, the catch is making sure that 20 doesn't turn into two hours. <laughs> and your boss catches you. <laughs> There's that, yeah. yeah. Uh, one last quick thing. It's got to be tough with a monkey wrench known as uh, the coronavirus pandemic. It's been a tough year, hasn't it? Yeah, and the brain loves certainty. So this put everyone's brain in, you know, we love patterns and certainty, and this really threw us for a loop. Well, that's fascinating information and just a great reminder to all of us that we need to slow down and listen to our bodies and get enough sleep. Thank you for joining us here on World Sleep Day. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Patrick Porter, neuroscience expert and founder of BrainTap.